And he starts describing what his father had told him, which very closely matched the description from the apparition through Annette. So that kind of experience, I, I don't even, you know, how, how do you, what do you make of that? Welcome to What the Fuck Just Happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a science skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder, what the fuck just happened? In this episode, Darren McEnany of Seeking Eye and I continue our conversation with parapsychologist Lloyd Arbach. If you missed the last episode, episode 13, you might be kind of confused because we jump right into where we left off. So you might want to go back and listen. And I asked him, why, why, <laughs> why is all this happening to me right now? And he said, just to prove to you that it's real. I feel like I had a little bit of similar, you know, it was having a few personal experiences, which I very rarely have, but that really made me able to listen to mediums and believe them when they'd say, oh, it feels like this, or it's like this, before I was like, right. That sort of experience also contains kind of the, the valuable information that I look for in out-of-body experiences, which is the veridical aspect to it. You had some kind of, you had the notes that you could compare, whereas a lot of out-of-body experiences that are mainly subjective, you don't have that ability to, to prove that they actually happen the way that you experience them to be. But with yours, it seems that you have those, that collaboration that you could compare and, and find identical notes with. Yeah, and you know, I've been fortunate to have corroborative or or veridical experiences of my own. But even the people that I work with, some of the cases I've got, having situations where you have multiple witnesses, uh, a consistent pattern to what's actually going on, consistent information. Uh, we had one um, one of the sessions we do with with a, a psychic by the name of Annette Martin, who was my investigation partner for a long time until she passed away in 2011. We did a lot of work at a restaurant called the Moss Beach Distillery, which I'm still involved with. I've been working with in kind of a long-term investigation since 91. And in 1999, we had uh, 98, 99, we had a couple of press parties there and uh, we did a seance kind of thing. And at one of the sessions uh, where the reporters were asking the, the ghost questions through Annette uh, and on occasion, Annette went into trance and the apparition would speak through her. But there was one thing that someone asked, uh, this is an old prohibition era building. So it was built 
in the 1920s, it was a speakeasy for quite some time, although not the kind where you needed a secret password. Um, it was here on the California coast. And from what we had heard from the local historian and from old time, I talked, when I first started doing this, I started talking to some old timers who have since passed away themselves, who grew up in the area and knew the, they went to the place when they were kids or when they, even when they were adults back then. And they, you know, I was, I was always in, interested to see if there was any like, you know, G-men raids, any government raids on, on the place. Uh, it was thought that, and there was pretty good evidence that the beach below was one of the coves where smugglers brought up booze from, from Canada. And of course it was supplied to the restaurant then taken into San Francisco. We had no, no idea that there were ever any raids. And that made sense because the, according to the stories from the old timers, people who, who went to the restaurant, to the speakeasy, included the mayors of San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, and other towns, police chiefs from the Bay Area, the governor of California, and people from Hollywood who were up in the Bay Area would, would go drink there because they didn't believe in prohibition. So nobody's going to raid that if the governor of California is there, right? That would not look good. It turns out, according to the apparition, to the blue lady, to Kate, that there were three raids on the, on the beach observed by people in the restaurant. And the description came through, right? So several months later, um, I was interviewing a witness at the USS Hornet Aircraft Carrier Museum, one of our other longer term cases, who's a former Navy SEAL and had had a number of experiences on the Hornet, although he refused to call them ghost experiences. He said, here's what happened. He said, I don't know if I believe in ghosts or not, but here's what I experienced. So then he tells us that he had had an experience at the distillery Back in the 50s, he saw the Blue Lady, which from a guy who doesn't believe in ghosts is pretty interesting. And the reason he was even there in the 1950s is because his father was an attorney for the state of California. And he proceeds to tell us about stories about his father getting to know the owner of the restaurant, the original owner, Frank Torres, and then subsequent owners, because he met them when he was there on the three raids on the Smuggler's Beach below the restaurant. That, were, that happened during Prohibition. And he starts describing what his father had told him, which very closely matched the description from the apparition through Annette. So that kind of experience, I, I don't even, you know, how, how do you, what do you make of that? It's not, it's not written down anywhere. And there's no records of this. Maybe there is some, there probably are some in the FBI archives, but that's, that'd be on paper. There's no way to actually get that electronically. And the, the historian didn't know about that. Some of the locals didn't know about that. So what do you make of that? That's a, an odd verification that we have to kind of put in as part of the evidence. That's the sort of thing that most um, skeptics or debunkers would, would class as anecdotal that can't be taken seriously because it can't be confirmed. Yeah, they, 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 you know, people toss around, including the TV ghost hunters, toss around the term anecdotal evidence, their phrase, like it's worthless. But the fact is, we would not be investigating anything, even on any, any psychological inf uh, experience at all, is all anecdotal, right? Any subjective experience that somebody tells you about is anecdotal. So there is no social science without anecdotal evidence. I would think there'd be regular science too. I mean, it's how you just, uh, they discovered meteors, you know, that people said there were rocks <laughs> falling from the sky. And... That's correct. Or gorillas. For that. Yeah. And... Rocks falling from the sky, gorillas in the jungle, and 
it started out at anecdotal evidence until they, this is the problem is that, you know, you have these physical things happening that are witnessed by lots of people. Maybe not the gorillas witnessed by a lot of people, but certainly meteorites witnessed by lots of folks and to not look into them, which is what happened is ridiculous. When the Wright brothers flew at Kitty Hawk in the early 1900s, there were reporters there, but scientists around the world were saying for weeks later, that that's not possible. Powered flight was not possible. And did they say that they were making it up? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. I find that a lot of a lot of scoffers are very quick to derogatively compare um, anomalous experiences to the likes of um, Bigfoot encounters and UFO abductions and things like that. Yeah. What do you think to that comparison? You know, there are so many varied types of human experiences the only comparison is it's an experience. It's something that somebody did witness or had an experience, a subjective experience. But you can't compare these things at all. They're not the same at all. And even all reported psychic experiences are not necessarily the same because people do make mistakes. They're misperceptions. People do come to wrong conclusions, which is why we have to ask questions, why we look into these things. And the scoffers, and the, the problem I've got really with the true disbelievers with those pseudo-skeptics is not even that they don't believe it. I, I'm fine if they don't want to think that it's possible. It's how they behave around that. It's how they attack people. It's how they laugh at people. It's, it's how they are arrogant about their belief. They're so certain that this is not possible, that you must be crazy or stupid. And they do their best to make people feel stupid. And that is as far from skepticism as possible. And it's, it's far from being scientific as possible. I mean, it's just really, to me, it's idiotic. I mean, I had a friend of mine, uh, one of the first skeptics I got to know really well, besides my uncle, my uncle Herb, who was a radio newscaster in New York, was very skeptical about all this. So I kind of grew up with a skeptic. So it, it's, uh, it was not, but he was, he was not a scoffer per se. He just would say, eh, something like that. Bob Steiner, Robert Steiner, who's no longer with us, was one of the founders of the Bay Area Skeptics. He was a magician. That's how I got to know him as a magician. Um, he was actually at one point a president of the Society of American Magicians. And Bob went through, told me he went through a process where he completely disbelieved in all this stuff and thought that everybody who claimed to be a psychic was a fraud and they were lying and all of that. And he got to, to learn from, he met people. He talked to people who had experiences. He spent time talking to some of the psychics. He was well-versed in cold reading and other techniques of fraudulent, of being a fraudulent psychic. And he came to the conclusion that there were an awful lot of people who were very sincere, but wrong. Even people who called themselves psychics. He's the one who actually pointed me at people who may have been incredibly observant and intuitive and their family or friends told them they must be psychic. They should be a psychic. So sometimes the environment convinces you that you are psychic, even though you're not. doesn't mean they're not useful or coming up with good information. It's just that, that it's not psychic. And, you know, I think Bob was close. He was still a little um, off to the disbeliever side, but he was always willing to look at evidence, always willing to talk about things. Um, I even got referred to him first by Bob's, by um, John Palmer, who was the parapsychologist, was the chair of our parapsychology program. Uh, he had gotten to know Bob as well. So while Bob was not interested in really delving deeply into the research, he did not dismiss things right off the bat. Certainly not as fraudulent or people as crazy at all. I mean, he didn't think that was the case. Although, as we know, 
there are people who have psychological issues that can present themselves as being psychic. Now, when you do an investigation, how do you tell the difference? What are we, between, is a medium genuine? Are people reporting genuine PK, which is, you know, a mind's ability to move objects versus either making it up or hallucinating? How, how, how do you tell the difference? Well, you know, I've had over the years, especially when our graduate parapsychology program, we had a number of people who were psychics, even a couple of mediums who said that they wanted to work with us. And we would check them out. You know, I'd have them do readings for us or take them on. A, sometimes I would take them on a case. First, I would have a long conversation with them, um, honestly, because there are personality issues that would make me not work with even the best actual psychic. If you take if you're working with them on an investigation or if you want to work with them in person or if you want to recommend them as somebody for a reading, there is a level of humanness, humanity that has to be present in them for us to work with them. You know, for me personally, work with somebody in research or an investigation, they have to be willing to be questioned. They have to be secure enough in themselves that if I ask them, are you sure you got that, that they don't suddenly get defensive. You know, so that process is part of my process of determining if somebody is psychic or not, or, or I'm going to work with them or if I'm going to recommend them. And same thing goes, you know, with medium, certainly. Then I, you know, have to look and see the kind of information that they get and what they can actually do. Now, when somebody tells me that they had an experience, you know, you really can't go back on one experience and delve into it too deeply because we were not at the location. So someone says, um, I can move objects. I have people who do contact me and say, I want you to research with me because I can, you know, bend things without actually touching them, bend spoons. I had a guy years ago, and I have a photograph somewhere of a guy who claimed he was able to not just do spoon bending, but he actually was able to take a wooden pencil and twist it into a knot. And I have a photo of what looks like a wooden pencil twisted into a knot from him. Uh, he's too far away for me to do actual research with. He had a great sense of humor about the whole thing. I would have loved to, the guys, I, I believe he's passed away now, but I would have loved to have, to actually have done research with this guy because he might've had something genuine, but he would have had to show it to me in a living context. We, we do try to look for alternative explanations when we're doing cases with, with physical activity. We're always looking for alternatives. We're always looking. And I have had a couple of cases where one family member was faking out the others. So we have to look at those kinds of things uh, when it comes to PK stuff. It's, it's not a simple, there's not a tell necessarily. Uh, although I will say that when I get calls from people who want an investigation and the case might sound really good. And then they, you know, I ask them, what do you want out of it? You know, do you want it to stop? Do you want understanding? What do you want? When I hear, well, we think we can probably sell this as a TV movie. We can write a book about it. We can put it on, tell you know, if, if it's that kind of thing and it's, you know, if it's a restaurant or bar that's a business that has something to promote, I might consider it. But when it's a private, you know, residence or something like that, there's something wrong here. That's a, that's a that's a red flag. And it's been a red flag for some of my my colleagues. My buddy, Pete Haviland, who unfortunately passed away last month, earlier this month, actually, in Texas, Pete, for a while, he, he was not a parapsychologist per se, but he was an incredibly knowledgeable investigator. And we, we talk quite often. And he, for a while, when he was starting out, he, he joined the TAPS, the Atlantic Paranormal Society, the guys from Ghost Hunters. He joined their network to get case referrals. That's the only reason he did it. He ended up stopping after a few years because 
50% of the cases that got referred to him in Texas, he and his people would show up at this house. It sounded great on the phone. They'd show up there and the people would get angry sometimes, not always angry, but really annoyed that the TV crews weren't there with them. They thought if they were calling taps, they'd get the ghost hunter guys showing up with TV. So in all of those cases, Pete said that they turned around and left. And those might have been legitimate cases. He felt bad about the ones, but he's, but you can't really deal with people that way. And you can't go past the idea that at least some of this is going to be exaggerated if they want to be on TV, if that's their reasoning. I suppose, what, what do you do when you're approached with questions regarding genuine mediums and, and genuine psi um, practitioners, I suppose, when, when you're approached with a question of, well, if they were genuine, they would have... A, won the Randy Challenge, B, won all the lotteries, C, warned everybody about upcoming earthquakes or terrorist attacks, things like that. Well, first, let's go to the second two first. They're not all precognitive. I know that every, people love to go to psychics to get their future, but the majority of psychics are not necessarily good about the future. And in fact, the really good psychics will tell you, and I'm going to paraphrase one of the psychics I worked with back years ago. She would tell people right up front, you know, because they're coming about their future. She would say, effectively, the future can change. If I give you information about what's going to happen in two weeks or next week, the information I give you, you may make different decisions. You're going to possibly do act on this information, even unconsciously. So now if you come back to me next week and tell me it didn't happen, I'll tell you that it didn't happen because you did X, Y, and Z. So... The better psychics believe that the future is not predetermined. Not all of them are connected to the earth. Not all of them can predict weather. Not all of them. I mean, let's face it. There is a physical science that is designed or dedicated to predicting the weather. It is a, you can get a PhD in meteorology and you can't predict the damn weather more than a couple of hours out because there are so many things in play around the world. And the same thing happens when you predict something for a human being. There's so many things in play for a horse race. So many things in play, jockeys and horses, the racetrack lottery. You know, I, most psychics are not terribly good with numbers. That's what I've, they're more kind of right brain visual in some ways. That's why associative remote viewing might work, but picking numbers don't doesn't necessarily work. All right. So there's the future piece. And I usually tell people, if you are trying to find out about your future, find out what's going on with you now that'll help you make decisions for the future, which is what Kathy Reardon, the psychic, would tell them. What I tell you now is what I see is looking towards what's going on for you. Use this information in a positive way for yourself. All right, as far as the Randy challenge goes, there are a lot of layers to this and it's changed, it had changed over the years. Of course, now you know it's, it hasn't been in operation since 2015, so there is no Randy challenge anymore anyway. Initially, when I, when I and others first read the rules and the application process, they were enough to cause people not to do the challenge. Uh, first of all, unless Randy took a personal interest in it right up front, you had to first be tested by a local group. And that test was likely not to be fair. It was not being overseen by Randy or his people. A lot of the local skeptic groups are not skeptics. They're pseudo-skeptics. And you have to pass their test first to get on to the Randy challenge. That's number one. So there's a lot of effort involved. That, that's that one piece of it. The other end of things, no matter how fair the testing that Randy was going to do was going to be, if you read the rules, if you won the million dollars or lost, either way, Randy owns the results. 
you everything has to be go if you win the million dollars everything had to pretty much go through the randy found it through randy himself or his people he could claim that you scammed them that you you conned them that you faked the whole thing beat our controls somehow you did it you're still a fraud you have a million dollars but you're still a fraud so your reputation is, is useless at that point there are so many other levels that effectively randy owned you and if the million was enough for you that's great but there were a couple of my colleagues actually sat in one my colleague uh, julian isaacs years ago sat in on one of the tests of a young girl who was doing pk and granted you want to as a researcher you want to see what they can do and then you want to start applying controls depending on what they can do i mean that's that's very fair and you and that may be a multi-hour process by the way to do that so that's what randy did and they and then they came to an agreement everybody came to an agreement this is a good test this is well controlled and randy said okay now we're going to do the test and this girl had been sitting there doing this for hours she was really exhausted julian said she needs to rest. No, no, we'll have to redo the whole control thing all over again. She has to do it now. So she failed. So there's a human performance issue here. And if you're made to do things over and over and over again, till there's a point of exhaustion, you need to, if you don't have time to, to reset, because they're afraid that suddenly you'll come up with another way to beat the controls in that couple of hours that you might have, there's a significant issue there. Clearly, that's a problem. Uh, the other thing, honestly, um, I, I talked to Annette Martin. I talked to other psychics about that. Annette was not a millionaire, but Annette was fair, was did well for herself, uh, herself as a psychic. And she and her husband actually had one of the first CD, if you remember CDs, CD uh, online shops out there before Amazon sold CDs. And they sold that to another company for a pretty penny. And she also, uh, there was a family um, hardware, a couple of hardware stores that she, she was involved in. So... When I asked her about that, she said, I don't need the million. I don't need that grief for a million dollars. It's too much grief. And so many others that I've talked to said the same thing. It's like, why would I ever want to subject myself to that man and to his people? Now, of course, there were people for a long time. We thought that there wasn't even a million dollars. There really was. Some other people put that money up. And there were a lot of folks who didn't think that the test was going to be fair. So they didn't even try because of that. Hearing, I believe, on a podcast or reading one example of someone who went through the test, and it just seemed it was actually, I wish I could remember the name of it, but it was Skeptics. It's a skeptical podcast because I always listen to both sides. And to me, I thought she'd passed, and they were trying to say all the ways she hadn't. And essentially, it was doing like, I believe, like a medical prediction, and she'd gotten it right significantly beyond the odds of chance, like new things she could not have known. I wish I remembered what about like three people and then she got one wrong and they were like, see, she doesn't have these abilities. Yeah, that was the thing is that it seemed like there was a moving target as to what the actual result, the agreement as to what what a success was. Was that the Russian, uh, the Russian girl? The target happened during the test or even after the test. Yeah, there were a few other people who also did really re what we would consider strong significance. I think there was an astrologer who did something who had incredibly, you know, good significance. There, there are several other people. Randy had a TV special years ago and they had a dowser. If I recall this, I have to look at that. I have it on tape somewhere. I'm trying to convert all my tapes right now to digital. But this was, they had barrels full of dirt and, wa and one with water. And the 
as I recall, the guy, the dowser found the water, but actually, but missed one, you know, actually said this one maybe is water too, but they didn't tell him how many water barrels there were. He did find water, but one of the other barrels he found was dirt. And so that completely invalidated the test as far as they were concerned. It was, that was not a million dollar challenge. It was just for a TV show. Inspired by David Justice, who died after a nearly two-year battle with glioblastoma, JET, Joyful Experience Team, was founded by his son, Oliver Justice, and his best friends, River Attard, Leo Gerstein, Jack Gorenstein, and Felix Ward. JET seeks to create joyful experiences for families struggling with brain cancer, a chance to enhance their lives with experiences that are rich in love and will be treasured for all time. We believe, like David did, that life should not be measured in time, but in joyful moments. JET will allow families coping with this painful diagnosis to go to special events and be treated like VIPs. Go to makingheadway.org forward slash JET for a complete list of programs and activities. You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis-hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, <laughs> open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. Yeah, it seems like that they have to prove it 100% of the time, which I don't think that would be possible. That's not humanly possible for anything. You know, a baseball player can't hit, you know, a home run every you you might do it one out of two times, but you can't do it two out of two times. And partly that's because every pitch is different, the conditions are different. You know, there, there's so many variables involved. And with human beings, the performance, I mean, I don't know any psychologist who would expect in a psychology experiment anyone to do this, the same thing every single time the same way, unless maybe they had OCD. I mean, this is why, you know, statistical analysis is so important, because you don't need a 100% success rate. You just need a certain level beyond reasonable assumption of chance. Yeah, if we apply that to physics, then the CERN super collider is a big, is a significant disappointment since... You know, even if they find the particle once and they declare it's real, how many billions of times did they look for it? Uh, in fact, in the um, in Discover Magazine back in the 80s, when the article that came out, short article about Project Alpha, where Randy had sent in a couple of magicians into a lab to try to fool the parapsychologists. And they really weren't fooled at the very end of things uh, when they because they hadn't found under control conditions, these guys couldn't do anything, but it, that's not how it was presented to the public. But there was an article on the same page about having found a new, I think it was a new muon, you know, using a bubble cloud chamber in physics and 
you predict the pathway um, of particle collisions in a bubble cloud chamber and try to match them to your mathematical prediction saying that here's the particle. So three, it was something like three bubble cloud chamber photos out of a couple of billion and they declared that the particle is real. So if you, I mean, in physics, that makes sense. But you could, I mean, if that, if that was the, the, if that's what you applied to human beings, you know, all bets were off on everything. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And I suppose to, you know, to, to give Randy his dues, he did certainly do a lot of good at, at showing many frauds, you know, to the public. I, I think that, yeah, I think Randy, you know, I am the first to admit that Randy did an amazing job on, on uncovering the faith, the phony faith healers. He did a lot with that aspect of things. And yes, he did uncover phony. I mean, I've, I've uncovered covered phony psychics as well. It's just that his attitude and the way he presented it often, you know, that's why his, I think that's that uh, documentary was called an honest liar. I would say a, a lying liar, like Al Franken would say, <laughs> because there wasn't a whole lot to this subject that was honest about him. I, I had my own run-ins with him. Uh, he never corrected himself. So, for example, there was an article that the Daily Grail, Greg Taylor wrote, a lengthy article looking at the Million Dollar Challenge a number of years ago. And the first quote in the article is from me, but there are many quotes from other people throughout the article. And Randy, when he posted it on his forum, and it's still up there in, their, in the, uh, the blog that he had, he made it, it looked like, I mean, when he wrote it, I don't think Greg Taylor's name was even mentioned. Apparently, I wrote the article and all the quotes were from me. And he took pot shots at me. So Greg Taylor immediately let me know that. I looked at it. Uh, he, Greg actually sent a note to, the ed- to Randy and to the, the moderator and editor of the forum. And the guy apparently talked to Randy and Randy refused to change it. So the moderator or the editor had to put a little message at the top. Just say just a little thing that if you didn't notice the beginning uh, indicator that this is not about Lloyd Auerbach, <laughs> you would think that it was still me. So stuff like that, why why not? Why not fix it? Why not change it? Um, a friend of mine who's got a really cool podcast called The Edge of Reality, uh, Lee Spiegel, uh, Lee also work, has worked for the Huffington Post. He had a radio show on NBC Radio, NBC AM in New York back in the late 70s into the 80s. And I did a number of his shows. We became good friends. And Lee did a review of Flim Flam, I believe it was, and found a huge number of your inaccuracies, incorrect statements that were easily, easily checked. So it was not an accurate book. And when this was presented to Randy, and this has happened multiple times, magicians who found errors in his history of conjuring, he said the same kind of thing. His researchers made those mistakes. He didn't. And yet his name is on the book as the author, that total liability for it. So if you're not willing to take credit or blame for mistakes that are made by other people because they're working for you, that means you're not checking their work. And what does that say about you? And not retracting if you're wrong. I mean, that's really the thing. If you're wrong, change it. You publicly retract if your goal really is to get to the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's pretty clear that, and this is the case with a lot you know, James Alcock, who wrote that article that where he said he didn't ever, never really look at the evidence. He wrote a book years ago on parapsychology. So at least he looked at something way back when. Uh, but he certainly has may have may not have looked at any research in recent times at all. And of course, the the hue and cry against 
the journal that was published that actually published Daryl Bem's Fueling the Future Precognition Study. When it was announced, the contents for the upcoming journal were announced, just the fact that all these mainstream scientists who were disbelieving pseudo-skeptics and skeptics were consistently trashing the journal, calling for the journal to, re to retract the article, to not publish it. And there were just so many things wrong. And reporters would sometimes ask those mainstream scientists, those main, some of them were big names, have you read the article, the paper? No. Why would I? ESP is impossible. I remember reading something. It was a skeptical article and it was actually knocking the Rhine. And I'd love you to mention the Rhine too. And they were mentioning going to an event and there was spoon bending there. And basically they said, obviously we all know spoon bending is impossible. We didn't try it, but, and I was like, I, you don't get more skeptical, especially than I was in the beginning. And I tried it and I did it one time. I didn't do it the next time, but then I watched people bend the same spoons I couldn't, all women about the same size. And it's just like, I think that was such a revelation for me was how all these people would say, this doesn't happen. This isn't possible. I never read it, but I never tried it, but, and I'm just like, that doesn't apply for anything, like anything in life. You really, if you're going to take the time to have a strong opinion, at least try it. Otherwise you could say, oh, I don't really believe it. I'm not that interested. But if you are taking the time to make a point, and I don't know, I've wondered this, and I'm curious your thoughts about this is a lot, as you define the pseudo skeptics, a lot seem like they come from fundamentalist religious backgrounds where they've been fed. Yes. Yeah. And not to knock religion, you know, I mean, I know some can be really wonderful, but nevertheless, they've been fed a very kind of pseudoscientific life that, you know, with the worst of religion, the worst of fundamentalists and limitations. So they have a none of this could be true, like sort of maybe an anger to that, you know, and yeah, that's something interesting I've noticed is almost every single one seems to have come from a fundamentalist religious background. Well, except that most of them are, are today, many of them are atheists. But they were raised fundamentalist religion. They may have been raised in the religion, yeah. You know, um, people react differently when they get out of those fundamental, um, those kind of rigid religious traditions. Sometimes they become agnostics for religion. Sometimes, you know, or they don't care. <laughs> sometimes they change to a different religion that's a lot less rigid. And sometimes they go to some form of atheism which can be incredibly rigid. Uh, and, in, you know, we see some people like Richard Dawkins, who calls himself a militant atheist to the point where, I mean, he is so dismissive of the people who have religious beliefs that the various, one of the major atheist organizations have kind of disowned him. So it's, there's a spectrum of belief uh, and disbelief in, in the divine and God and a higher power or whatever else. And even to me, if you spend time talking to people and meeting and discussing the lack of a God, and you know, if you're talking about God in a negative context, you're still doing religious discussion. So you're still behaving in a religious context in that way. If you simply don't talk about it or don't care, you know, that's, that's fine. Yeah. And it marks a difference between atheism in terms of the disbelief or the lack of belief in a god versus an atheist movement, which becomes political. Correct. 
as far as I can see. And when it becomes a political movement, it's indistinguishable, apart from the existence of a deity, it's indistinguishable from any other religious, or any religious movement itself. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, the Skeptical Inquirer years ago started doing ads where, you know, asking people to, to remember the, remember Psycop in their, in their wills, in their bequests, which is something that churches have been doing for hundreds of years, some of the some of the, the tactics, some of the uh, what they've done in the journal in their magazine. It's not a journal; it's magazine and online and other things. You know, it's it's good fundraising, but it mimics what a lot of religious organizations do. You know, I guess you see, you see a good idea, so you take it on. So, but it's uh, the behavior is rigid. It is. Again, the problem. I don't have a problem with rigid thinking or disbelief. I have a problem. I don't even have a problem if somebody says, "Why would I?" Something like that. But to be arrogant, to react to somebody uh, who has an experience and say, "Oh, you're totally, you know, you're lying, you're you're gullible, you're crazy, it's all woo woo or just woo," as they're using it now. If you have even have an interest in it, that's a real problem. Years ago, uh, we heard about this at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab that Brian Josephson, who is a Nobel Prize winning physicist for the this superconducting circuit, he's expressed interest in consciousness and even parapsychology over the years. And we heard at the lab, one of the physicists told us this, that he was uninvited to a physics conference in England. He was told not to come because of his interest in consciousness and, and psi. And the the second part of that was a few days later, he was reinvited because many of the the people who were registered who were planning on attending were then saying, we're not coming if he's not coming because of this. That's like saying, you know, if anybody's coming who happens to also be religious to a physical, you can't come. It's, it's, it's a form of, um, I was just going to say, it's, it's a form of prejudice. It's totally a form of prejudice. Yeah. It's academic prejudice. And, and frankly, the uh, in, in the UK, I think it's a little bit more open to consciousness inside than it is here in the state states because Psychop had such an, a direct influence on academics. We there are people who can't even t express their interest in the subject within their department for fear of ridicule or even problems with the university. Um, I, I knew someone who was an adjunct professor at the University of Florida who was fired because of his outside interest in parapsychology and doing investigations. And he had a letter to prove it. And I tried very hard to convince him to sue the university because he actually could have, could have, would had, I showed a couple of attorneys, he would have had no problem winning that case. The problem is that his wife had a really good job in administration and they didn't fire her. And there would have been retaliation. And while they were doing the case, she would have been fired and then they would have had no income. So he decided not to do it. First of all, that's so maddening because truly a scientist or, you know, skeptic is curious about all research and they seem to conflate data in parapsychological research with, you know, religion or spirituality. I mean, and not that there's anything wrong with religion or spirituality when, you know, as long as it's not passing laws or, you know, but they seem to conflate the two when one is very much data and science and they're, they're very different to me. Well, the problem is, is the people on the other side also conflate it with religion and spirituality. I did an Oprah Winfrey show years ago, uh, centered on a case that was uh, that was was in a book called The Black Hope Horror, 
um, was a neighborhood in Texas where um, it was like the Poltergeist movie. This couple was having a swimming pool dug and bodies fell out. And um, that's because it turned out the developer put the development on top of a potter's field. It didn't move the bodies. So it, it, the, the, um, the couple actually ended up finding other neighbors and suing the developer. And it made the news as the poltergeist case. Not too long after that, apparently a writer started canvassing the neighborhood looking for anybody who might be willing to talk about their negative experiences of this, because clearly this would generate something like in Poltergeist, and we could probably do an Amityville horror type book. So he found a, found a couple who did that. Now, the first couple had a positive experience. They helped, they got a fund up and they paid for the reburial, the identification reburial of, of the people in the potter's field. They had a positive experience with an apparition. Another neighbor had a positive experience. So almost all the neighbors had positive experiences. And that couple was also on the panel along with the couple who wrote the book with the author. So Paul Kurtz, who was big at Psychop, was with me. And he was shocked to find out that I was also incredibly skeptical of these people. We agreed on pretty much everything. But at one point, the guy, when I was questioning, or we were questioning the legitimacy, especially of some of the things they reported as being responsible from the ghosts, the, the negative spirits. They had four family members die uh, after they moved off, after all this happened, three of whom did not die at the location, one of whom who died at the house who ha had, a, had actually cancer and she died of a heart attack. So the heart attack obviously was caused by a ghost. And we were questioning that. And the guy said, you know, if you don't believe in God, you don't believe in ghosts. It's like, what do the two things have to do? And I've heard that before. You know, people do conflate these two things and whether they're believers or frauds. And I do have to say, have to say also, Liz, that some, uh, you know, it's not just a religious reaction or an anti-religious reaction that some of the pseudo-skeptics have. Sometimes, and I've met people who have been scammed by psychics, phony psychics, and they go the other direction. Or they knew someone who was scammed by a phony psychic. That makes sense. So that is enough to cause that kind of instant reaction and lump them all together as well. That makes sense too. Okay, so it's almost an hour and a half. I don't want to keep you too long, Lloyd. So maybe Darren and I can each finish up with one more question because I could keep talking about this all night. <laughs> you know, I assume you have other things to do. Oh, I, I could, I could, yeah. I guess, Darren, do you want to go with your last question? I suppose a good question to ask would be, um, do, do you think that the legitimate science of, of paranormal investigation has been, I suppose, tarnished by the, the more entertainment-based ghost hunting shows and um, YouTube channels and things like that? And did, which would you consider to be the more legitimate than others? Well, I don't think any of the shows are legitimate at all. I mean, they're, they're run by producers and editors. They're not legit at all. And the methods that they're using are based on the needs of television, not based on the needs of science. And unfortunately, too many of the ghost hunters out there and paranormal investigators are following these methods, which are flawed to begin with. So they may have a genuine interest in, unfortunately, not everyone who calls himself a ghost hunter actually is interested in doing anything more than getting that EVP that excites them or having an experience. They're not really interested in why or what's happening. They're really not. But there's a, a large percentage who are. It's just that they're starting from a perspective, or a place that is flawed. Now, on the positive side, the shows have brought people out of the woodwork with their interest, which is good. Some of those people then learn that there's another way to do things, that they'll take courses or start reading books in parapsychology. 
also positive. Interestingly enough, I don't see too much from the skeptics, the pseudo-skeptics or skeptics in general, that compares parapsychology to what's on TV, to those ghost hunting shows. I don't see too much of that. I have been cast in that role by Randy, in fact, even though he knew damn well that, in fact, people knew he knew that wasn't true. And after he posted something about me, after I had done him a favor, it was the weirdest thing in the world, I was told not to respond to him. And some of my skeptic buddies did (laughs) and basically dealt with it. So, you know, you have a separation in that way, which is good. And I think it's because we're a lot more careful, although because of the way when I do a TV show, it can be edited in such a way that it makes me look like I'm doing something like the ghost hunters are doing, even though I'm not really doing that. Um, And I have to explain that, which is fine. What's happened, however, is it's pushed all these people who have an interest in the subject away from parapsychology because the main show, Ghost Hunters, and the secondary main show, Ghost Adventures, have nothing to do with parapsychologists at all. I mean, Barry Taft's been on Ghost Adventures a couple of times. I even did Ghost Adventures as a favor to a friend of mine on the sh- who worked on the show, just a quick intro to the USS Hornet. That's as, as far as I've gotten for that. But unfortunately, there's a mobilization of all these people that could be very helpful to parapsychology if, in fact, they actually spent a little time learning about not only the real thing to do, but also how to communicate that within the field. Most of my colleagues do not watch those shows. Some of them don't even watch much TV. You know, they're in that academic world where they may not even have a TV, which I can't even imagine these days. But I've been told uh, when I've mentioned some of the shows or some of the stuff to some of my colleagues, they were totally unaware, which is oblivious to everything, which is also an indication that the skeptics are not connecting to parapsychology. What would you say would be the strongest evidence that should give someone hope this is really true, that there is afterlife and something more than just consciousness by a brain? I, I don't think there's one piece of evidence. I think it's the preponderance of evidence from a variety of types of experiences. You know, I, I really suggest people look at Jeffrey, especially Jeffrey Mishlove's Bigelow Prize winning essay, which is fairly lengthy only because he has embedded links and videos in it throughout, which has kind of made a, uh, a shorter document significantly longer. So it may look like it's a really long document. It's really not as long as it looks. If you folks just simply go to Bix, B-I-C-S, I think it's Bix.org. It's the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies. If they go there and look at the winning essays, at least a few of them, Mishlovs and a couple of the others by folks in the field, you'll get a feel for the kinds of evidence there is. The other side of that is personal. It's a personal thing. People who have an experience with an apparition at the time of that person's death or right after, that's very convincing. People who have longer-term apparitional experiences, that's very convincing. People who have a near-death experience, that's convincing to them. So it just really, it can come at it from two different angles. But what it boils down to is, We still don't know what the afterlife is like, but we do have enough evidence to indicate that consciousness can exist without the body, can survive on its own afterwards. Unless you're a materialist, in which case none of this counts. 
I'm going to add also take classes at the Rhine with Lloyd. That made a big difference for me early on to see this taught in a logical, intelligent way, which I wasn't expecting. So yeah, that really helped me. Yeah. And speak, speaking of which, coming up in uh, February, the uh, next course I'll be teaching, we'll be looking at some key cases of apparitions, hauntings, and poltergeists in the past. Uh, some of a uh, number of mine, but also some of my colleagues as well. So kind of an in-depth look at some of these cases that uh, most of which suggests some idea of consciousness after death. And then there'll be a, our course on the evidence for survival will be ha handled in the spring. And it's the Rhine Education Center. It's Rhine, R-H-I-N-E-E-D-U.org. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to share that my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife is available now for sale. If you go to wtfjusthappened.net, you can see the link to buy it. I'll also have the link in the podcast show notes. I know many of you want to know how exactly did I come to change my mind about the afterlife? Well, this book is all about the first stages of my exploration into this afterlife evidence to where I'm at today. It starts with the awful part of when I lost my dad, how as a science-minded atheist, I first began to explore if there was any possibility of an afterlife, and what and who I found most compelling. I also share some stuff that was not so compelling, such as a very clearly fake psychic medium reading and a pretty ridiculous seance, but that's balanced by some amazing peer-reviewed studies on mediums, medium readings, parapsychologists, and just a whole bunch of what the fucks, including some really inexplicable personal things that happened to me, and some really incredible signs I got from my dad. Despite the topic, it's actually funny, mainly because I'm just like such an awkward person. And you also get to learn about all the amazing people and incredible characters I met along the way, as well as more about the research that helped change my mind. And some of the people you learn about have become some of my really good friends and mentors today. So go to wtfjusthappened.net and order it. If you've already read it, please rate and review on Amazon. I cannot tell you how helpful that is and share with any friends who might be interested. Thank you all. I'm so excited to finally share the full details of this crazy exploration with all of you. As I'm sure you've heard, the Supreme Court in the United States just overturned Roe v. Wade, which protects a woman's right to have an abortion if she chooses. Now it's illegal in some of our states. If anyone is looking to obtain an abortion and you live in a state where it's illegal, you can check the following sites. I suggest using a VPN, virtual private network, which hides your identity on your computer or phone. These are the sites, womenonwaves.org, womenonweb.org, aidaccess.org, plancpills.org, wholewomanshealth.com, abortionfunds.org, and of course, Planned Parenthood. 
I linked all of them on our Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore. And they're saved in our stories. These are also great places to donate and see if they need any help. And now we're going to pause for a second for the question of the week. Chloe asks, what do I mean by an unintentional cold reading? She's heard me mention on this podcast that some mediums accidentally give just a cold reading, which is when someone gives a reading off of how someone looks or logical information based on reading their facial expressions as opposed to an actual psychic or medium reading. And the really good psychics and mediums don't do this overall. But it's when someone is getting information by normal means and they believe that they do have psychic medium abilities and believe that they are getting this information psychically or mediumistically. I'll give an example. So I once took a mediumship class just for fun. I don't have abilities. And I was paired with a woman who was probably about 60. And I was told to give her a psychic medium reading. And things came into my head, such as you've lost a grandmother. She loved to bake. You were close with her. Those are all very logical things to deduce. And I know that they were just coming into my head logically. And I was trying to do the assignment and give information. And I'm not a psychic medium. And I wasn't able to get information any other way. So now if I believed I had abilities, I might think I'm giving a psychic medium reading. Often when people think they have abilities, it'll be very general information, such as what I just said, that a 60-year-old has lost a grandmother. I think, although I'm not positive, I think all psychic mediums might get a tiny percent of information that way, maybe like 2% of the information. They are humans, and they're reading a human, and maybe a small percent of the information some of them would still pick up that way, the way anyone else would, but they also are getting information from someone who's passed away that they really couldn't get off of looking at a person, such as someone's job who's passed or a favorite memory. So that's what I mean when I say giving an unintentional cold reading. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at WTF just happened.net and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know and feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. This is the end of my conversation with Darren McEnany and Lloyd Arbach. To follow Darren, go to his website, seeking i Dot com, which also links to all of his other channels. To follow Lloyd, he has many links and social media and places to buy his books. I'll link to them in the show notes, but you can also Google Lloyd with one L, Auerbach, A-U-E-R, 
B-A-C-H. To get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to wtfjusthappened.net. There you can order my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife. And you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them trying to get evidence, see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore or email me at hello at WTF just happened dot net. And remember, you don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened. Thank you.